0: Thanks for coming today. Thanks for joining us for worship. My name is Caleb. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer. I've been part of Redeemer for almost from the very beginning, since 2009. So thank you so much for joining us for worship. If you have your Bibles today, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. That's page 980 in the black Bibles in front of you if you're using one of those. We have been working our way through the book of Philippians for the last couple months. We're going to continue doing that. Um, Today we're going to be looking at the same passage that we looked at two weeks ago. Uh, I preached on this passage two weeks ago. It's not going to be the same sermon. Um, It's going to be different, hopefully. Um, Before we dive into that, let's begin with reading our passage. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, says this, Like I said, we're going to be looking at the same passage that we looked at two weeks ago. Now, for those of you who were here then, or maybe you listened to it online, you might remember that this passage is sometimes called the Great Christ Hymn of Philippians. It's a, it's a poetic, almost rhythmic summary of the person and work of Jesus. In it, we see so many grand, eternal, central truths of the Christian faith. We see glimpses of Jesus' eternality his full deity, his full manhood, his willingness to lay aside his exalted status and come to earth, taking on human flesh, his humility and service and laying his life down for his people by dying a horrific death on the cross. And then Paul ends with the glorious declaration that Jesus is now, right now, highly exalted in a new and unique way And that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him to be the Lord of all creation. Now, each of these aspects of the person and work of Jesus are absolutely worthy of our attention, and we spent a lot of time on some of them last week, but... You can't cover all this in one sermon or really even two sermons. And so for this reason, I feel like I left a few loose ends after preaching on this passage a couple weeks ago. And on top of that, I didn't spend much time helping us think through how this passage can apply to our everyday lives. There just wasn't time to do that. And this is something, this idea of seeing how these big eternal truths Transfer down into our everyday lives. It's something I'm very passionate about. It's very dear to my own heart. This kind of thing is the means that God used actually to ignite in me a desire for ministry. When I years ago, um, probably 15 years ago, uh, I began to see how Scripture. I, I'd grown up in church. I had heard the gospel many times. I've been a believer for for many years. But when I finally started to dig into God's Word for myself, and I began to hear and and understand how these kind of abstract theological um, ideas should actually be impacting my life, it was like the light switch was turned on. I just knew I had to dedicate my life to this somehow, right? Whether that's vocational ministry, whatever, Um, I wanted to help people understand God's Word so that it impacts their everyday life. We must always remember to strive to see how our theology, how our doctrine should impact our lives. If we ever become Christians who spend all of our time in the clouds of theological discourse and we fail to see how the truths of Scripture should impact our lives day to day, then we're missing the point. So, for that reason, I thought it would be good for us to revisit this passage and ask some specific questions about how God might be impressing upon us to put these things into practice. Now, let's quickly review what we saw two weeks ago. It's been two weeks since we looked at this passage, and so I want to just do a quick review on what we what we saw last week. First, we see that Jesus is fully God from this passage. Look at verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God... Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay? If you remember last week, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the form of God. What does that mean? It means he shares the same essence as God, right? It does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched onto. In other words, he was equal with God, but he did not grab onto, he did not hold tightly to the benefits of his full deity, but rather, He came to earth. He gave those things up in some sense by taking on human flesh. So first we see that Jesus is fully God. Second, we see that Jesus is fully man. Look at verses seven and eight. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. That's that word again. It means he had the very essence of humanity He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here we see that Jesus was not only fully God, he was also fully man. Before this time, he was not fully man. He took on human flesh when he came to earth, being born of a virgin, so we see that Jesus is fully God. We see that Jesus is fully man. He takes on human flesh so that he can give his life as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. And that's our last, our last point from last time was he was fully obedient. Jesus is fully God, fully man, fully obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that's a very quick summary. If you have questions about that or if that's confusing to you, please go back and listen to the sermon from two weeks ago because I spent a lot of time uh, unpacking those verses. But we must remember the context. Paul's point in, in saying all of that is actually not to argue for any of those points. That's not his main point in this passage, His point in this passage is to motivate us, to motivate the Philippians to have the same mind of Christ, which is marked by humble, Christ-like unity. That's his point. He wants them to be humble and to have unity in the church. But to get us there, he points to the person and work of Jesus and says, look at Jesus. Look at how he did it. Jesus did not just become partly like us. He's not just kind of like us. He's not an in-between kind of person that's not really like God and not really like man. No. If you remember the illustration from two weeks ago about the king that we we talked about, who he decided he, he wanted to live like a beggar because he wanted to know what it would be like to live as a beggar. That king Even though he clothes himself in the dirtiest rags and eats the nastiest street food, and even though he is treated like one of the dregs of society, he still retains his full kingship. He's no less king just because he's living as a beggar. The intrinsic, the the essence of his kingship is all still there. He just also becomes a beggar. He takes on the status of a beggar. Jesus, in His humanity, has done the same thing. When Jesus came into the world, He did not cease to be God. He did not empty Himself of any of His divine nature. Instead, He took on human nature. And in doing this, His human nature cloaked or masked the expression or full manifestation of His divine glory. It was all still there. It was just not fully expressed because he was choosing to live fully as a human as well. Now, there is one instance, if you remember, where Jesus completely unmasks himself on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, right? He, 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 he'd shown his glory to them and they come down and their faces are shining because they have just beheld the glory of Christ um, uncloaked from the human flesh. It was an amazing experience, I have no doubt. The more we meditate on who Jesus is, in his very essence, the more we start to realize just how glorious and mysterious, this is a mysterious thing. I don't have all the answers to how this worked, right? Or all the details of how Jesus lived his life this way. But it is an awesome reality that we have this Savior. This should change our hearts. Anytime we get a glimpse of the glory of Christ, Our hearts should be softened. Our wills should be more in line with the will of God, and our love for others should increase because we've come face to face with the person of Christ. But it's also necessary for us to examine our own lives in light of these truths and to look for areas in our own lives where we might need to actively put away sin or take steps of obedience and that's what I want us to, to do today. We're not just going to meditate and consider these great and glorious realities of who Christ is and, and, then, and then just kind of walk out after that. I want us to really think, okay, this is what Christ has done. This is who he is. How does this actually, how can this actually look in my life if I'm going to be like Jesus? So that's what we're going to do today. And so I have three points, and they all start with this This uh, sentence clause. Since Jesus is fully God, fully man, and fully obedient, here's my first point we should imitate his humble service. We should imitate his humble service. This is Paul's main point, as we just saw. Remember the context. Four times in the verses leading up to verse 5, Paul tells the Philippians to share the same mind with one another. He wants them to do nothing from selfish ambition, and most specifically, he wants them to look not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he launches into the example of Christ. If we want to know what it looks like to live in humble unity with one another in our church, Paul wants us to look to Jesus if we're experiencing conflict in our home and struggling to be unified with our spouse, Paul wants us to look to Jesus. We saw this two weeks ago, but today I want us to stop and really consider how we can imitate Christ. Now, how can we summarize what Jesus did? We already have, but just very quickly, he did not grasp, he did not hold tightly to his equality with God. But he was able to let go of his rightful, exalted status. And Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, shared all the divine qualities with the Father and the Spirit. But for the sake of love and obedience, he did not cling to those privileges, but he laid them down so that he could come to earth. And second, he chose hardship and suffering and rejection for the sake of others. He took on human flesh, he lived a life of full obedience to his Father, and then sacrificed his life for rebel sinners like you and me. So that's the picture we have. That's the example of humble service that Christ has left us. But as we consider that this morning, let's take some time to ask some specific questions about our own lives. How might the Spirit be applying this, the mind of Christ, to your life today? To help us think through this, I want us to consider three of our most common life contexts, the home, the workplace, and our church. Let's start with the home. Husbands, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at me. It's absolutely true that God has placed you in a position of leadership in your home. You are called to lead out, to give direction, to point the way forward for your family. Yes, it is true that wives are called to lovingly and gently, faithfully submit to your godly leadership, but remember, not even Jesus, the eternal Son of God, not even He came to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Is your leadership in the home marked by the humble, servant-hearted character that we see in Christ? Is it marked more by dominating force? Or is it marked by a desire to serve and to love? That's really what, that's really a way that we can apply this passage to our lives. I mean, we should not meditate on this reality of Jesus and His humble service without asking these kinds of questions of ourselves. How has God called me to humble myself? How am I humbly seeking unity in my home with my spouse? Wives, what about your interactions with your husband? Do you speak to him with a tone of annoyance or condescension, even though you probably have good reason to? Uh, Is your desire to model Christ-like gentleness And patience with him in his flawed leadership. Or do you really desire to just take the leadership role from him because you see yourself as more gifted and more qualified for it anyway? In both situations, whether the, the husband's uh, harsh leadership or the, the wife's desire to rule over him, the desire is to grasp at something, is to grasp and hold on to something rather than lay something down. Almost all conflict in marriage stems from one or both people trying to maintain some kind of exalted status over the other person. This is why our tendency is to always point out the failings of, our, of the other one um, before we really acknowledge our own failures? Sure, we're, we're usually willing to admit some fault, right? As long as he or she admits fault as well. We all have an innate desire to exalt ourselves over others rather than empty ourselves for the sake of others. The gospel, the example of Christ completely flips this on its head. See, the gospel frees us to stop living in the bondage of self-preservation. That's exactly what that is, bondage. When we fight, when we grasp, when we cling to any sort of status. If if I do this, if I admit this, if I lay this down, oh, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose This up here, I'm going to lose this picture, I'm going to lose this reputation, I'm going to lose this this role that, that I think I have to maintain, this expectation. If I admit that I have failed, all this is gone. But the gospel says, lay it down, give it up, admit, confess, humble yourself. Husbands and wives, ask the Lord to show you where you need to repent and confess, maybe to your spouse today, maybe to your children today, maybe to someone else. Our families are not meant to be perfect. They're not, our homes are not little perfect places where a bunch of perfect people get along with each other. We must start thinking about our homes as workshops for God's grace. You come to the Paul Tripp seminar in a few weeks, he's probably gonna say those exact words because I stole it from him. Um, Our homes, our families, our workshops for God's grace. It's where we learn how to put into practice the steps of love and forgiveness and humility. God regularly gives you opportunities to show grace in your home and to receive grace. It's harder to receive grace sometimes, isn't it? We think about that. If someone sins against you, sometimes, I would say most of the time, it's probably fairly easy to forgive. If they come to you, and there's confession, ready to forgive, it's, it's done. But what if you've sinned against them? Right? That initial step of actually admitting that you have done something, you have hurt them, you have made a mistake that 's hard it 's hard to receive that grace from someone else because it takes um, it, it takes an active overt uh, act of humility to do so. If you have children you 've certainly experienced this to an even greater degree. right Children are little sanctifying machines in our lives in our homes. Um, they are God's gifts to us, to humble us. Um, you are not the, the, the perfect parent who is always right uh, in how you deal with your children. As much as I want to convince myself that they just need to obey, right? Um, oftentimes, I have to go back to them and apologize for how I've spoken to them and, uh, and raise my voice and set expectations too high for them. So again, we must start thinking about our homes as workshops for God's grace. Second, let's think about our workplace. What about where you work? If you're a student, this would be the time you spend in class or, or, or in your studies. Do you ever ask the question, how can I humbly serve my coworkers or fellow classmates? How can I be a, be a voice of encouragement and love to the people I have contact with every day? It's so easy I mean, I I was this way, I still am this way most of the time. It's so easy to show up to class or work every day without really giving much thought to the others around you. You just show up, put your head down, do your work, get out. But I really want to challenge us to consider how we can serve those around us with humility. How can we put this picture of Christ into practice with those that we work with? Do your coworkers even know you're a follower of Christ? Do you talk about Christ while you're there? God has placed you there in that job, in that class, in that, that degree program to be an instrument of His grace. How can you help foster peace and unity while you're there? So often, our workplaces become incubators for passive aggressive conflict and gossip and negativity. What if you decided to be different, to speak words of encouragement, to go out of your way to serve others? Just one really practical thing, we haven't talked about this in a long time, Uh, we did very early on in the life of Redeemer. If you're a student here, or if if you're not a student, but if you want to be of service to students at U of I, there's this thing called the Intensive English Institute It's basically foreign students come here. Um, One of the things that most of them have to do is learn English, right? And so the Intensive English Institute, they have this thing called Convo Partners, Conversation Partners. You sign up, they pair you with one or two or three um, international students, and guess what you get to do? Just go talk to them, right? You just go to Starbucks, you meet them on campus, whatever, and you just talk to them, help them with their English. I wonder what you could talk to them about right? Can you think of like anything, like something that's maybe really important to you that would be really good to talk to an international student who's probably not a Christian about? Probably about Christ, right? What a great way to serve students, to serve our campus, to pour yourself out. What about our church? We don't have this problem in the church, do we? Humility, unity. Remember, this whole passage is addressed to a specific church, If we want to to maintain unity, how do we do it? Is it by convincing one another to agree on our theological positions? Maybe, part of it, right? Is unity established when we all agree on every decision and every direction for our church? Man, I hope not. There are times in leadership when I've heard opinions from members of our church that are completely opposite from one another. They're irreconcilable. No matter what decision is made, someone will be disappointed. But does our unity mean that we all must agree on everything all the time? No. Unity happens when we seek to imitate Christ in his humble service. Unity comes when we approach decisions with humility that says, this is what I think, but I could be wrong about this. This is my opinion, but I want to do what is best for the church. Unity in the church leaves significant room for grace towards one another. Not just a little room for grace, significant room for grace. I know I want it. Man, I need your grace. If I have not sinned against you, I will. And so um, I need your grace. I, I, want to, I want to know that the people that I love and I've committed my life to will not cast me out when my sin creeps up and creeps out. See, the church is not a place where a bunch of perfect people get together and act perfect with one another. It's a place for broken sinners to lay that down their own self-interest for the good of others. What this all comes down to, and we said it over and over, and we we said it many times in Philippians already. What this comes down to is humility—the ability to consider other people's interests above your own. That's really the essence of humility. C.S. Lewis captures the essence of humility in in these two quotes. They've always stuck with me. Whenever I think about humility, I think about C.S. Lewis. These two quotes come to mind. He says first, very short one, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Very easy way to, to, to picture humility. But here's a longer quote. He says this about the truly humble person. To even get near humility or a truly humble person, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy, that means insincere, person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Church, imagine what our homes our workplaces, and our church would be if we could be people who really don't think about ourselves. That doesn't mean we don't care for ourselves or that we have a low view of ourselves. That's not what I'm saying. It means we care so much about others and their interests and their struggles and their lives that our own self-interest just kind of fade into the background. That's what a life of selfless, humble service looks like. It's what I know I need more of. I need this. So first, we see that we are called to imitate Christ in his humble service. That that is really Paul's main point in this passage. If you want to maintain unity, seek humility. If you want humility, look at Jesus. Second, because Jesus is fully God, fully man, and fully obedient... We should imitate his spirit-empowered humanity. We should imitate his spirit-empowered humanity. Jesus lived, as we talked about two weeks ago, the vast majority of his life as a man anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, does that seem strange to you? Maybe you're like me, and you read passages in the Bible that talk about Jesus doing things in the power of the Holy Spirit, or that the Holy Spirit rested upon him. And for me, things get kind of muddy right there. Does that get kind of muddy for you? Maybe not. But it confuses me, or at least it had for a long time. If you Just real quickly, turn over to Acts chapter 10, verse 34. I want us to see this. this we could look at a number of these passages, but here's one that, that stood out to me uh, this week. Acts 10, 34. Says this, so Peter opened his mouth. This is Peter preaching after the whole ordeal with uh, Cornelius and his vision and and Peter, right? Um, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Now listen to what he says about Jesus. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Does that kind of muddy things for you a little bit about Jesus and his nature and his work? Why did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? Wasn't he divine all by himself? Wasn't he God in the flesh? What did the Holy Spirit add to Jesus? The answer is nothing. Nothing. The Spirit did not add to the essence of Jesus' divine nature. But as we've already seen, Jesus did not live His life in the power of His divine nature. He chose to clothe Himself with humanity, and because of that, He relied on the help and the power of the Holy Spirit as He sought to glorify God with His life. Think about the story from Luke 2. Jesus as a boy. Is that is this a story ever? It just seems strange to me. Um, he's 12 years old. First of all, his parents just leave him. How does that even happen? Um, they go on this journey, and they, they realize, day, I think it's days later, like, oh, yeah, our son isn't even with us. So they have to go back um, and, and get him. And he, where is he? He's in the temple, right? He's he's. Um, debating or, or discussing with the religious leaders of his day. He's 12 years old. Now, if, if you were to if someone were to ask you, how is Jesus able to do that, what would you say? How is Jesus able to to debate and 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 discuss with these teachers? He was teaching them. How is he able to do that with these grown men? Is it because, and I probably would have said this, well, because he's God, right? Jesus is God. That's how he's able to do it. I don't think that's right. Because remember, remember what we're saying. Jesus lived his life. He took on human flesh, and in the power of the Spirit, he lived his life. The reason Jesus was able to, to have these discussions and debate and teach the teachers of his day when he was 12 years old was because... For 12 years, he grew, as the passage says immediately after this, he grew perfectly in the wisdom and knowledge and stature of man. So, every opportunity that Jesus had for 12 years to grow in wisdom, he grew perfectly. Every opportunity that Jesus had to obey the Father, he obeyed perfectly. What we see in 12-year-old Jesus is the pinnacle example. It is the, the epitome of God's original design for every 12-year-old boy. This is who we were meant to be as a 12-year-old. That, that was Jesus. He did this in the power of the Holy Spirit. He, did not, he was not able to do these things because he relied on his divine nature. He did it in the power of the Spirit as he was faithful to his Father. Now, what in the world does this have to do with us, This is important because in this we see that Jesus made use of the same resources that we have to live a godly life. The word of God, prayer, the Holy Spirit. In this, Jesus is our perfect example of a godly human being. Jesus needed this whole, the Holy Spirit in every act that took place in his life. The Holy Spirit had to overshadow Mary at his, at his incarnation. Jesus, or Christ needed the Spirit at his anointing for public ministry when John baptized him. He needed the Spirit when driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He needed the Spirit when casting out demons in order to establish the kingdom of God. He needed the Spirit to enable him to offer himself without spot to God as an atoning sacrifice for his people. That's Hebrews 9. And he needed the Spirit to raise him from the dead, according to Romans 8. At every step in his ministry, Christ relied upon the third person of the Trinity. The point is this. Even though Jesus was fully God and maintained all of his divine qualities during his earthly ministry, he deliberately chose to live his life as a spirit-empowered man. In so doing... He shows us how we too can live a life making use of the same resources he had at his disposal. The word of God, the spirit of God, prayer, the fellowship of believers. 1 Peter 2, Peter tells us that Christ has left us an example so that we might follow in his steps. Church, this is not unattainable for us. We, We don't have to read that passage in, in, in first peter and say oh come on peter following his steps come on he's god right we all know we can't really do that no we have the same resources available to us that jesus had in his spirit empowered humanity we really are meant to look at the life of jesus and do what he did did jesus pray then we pray Did Jesus read and rely on the Scriptures of His day? Then we also read and rely on the Scriptures. Did Jesus seek to do the Father's will on a daily basis in the power of the Spirit? Then so do we. He is our supreme example of Spirit-empowered living. And I'm convinced that part of the reason we repeatedly return to our sin over and over is because we have convinced ourselves that this really is who I am. But church, if we belong to Christ, we have been given a new identity. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. This is our new reality. You don't have to return to your old ways. You've been given a new nature, and you are filled with the same Holy Spirit, the very presence of God that rested upon Jesus. So that besetting sin that you just can't seem to shake, you really can overcome it in the power of the Holy Spirit. That temptation that when it creeps into your mind seems so powerful, so irresistible, you really can resist it in the power of the Holy Spirit that person that just seems so hard to love and be patient with, you really can love with the love that Christ has for you in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do all these things, not because you are a wonderful person, but because God himself is with you and in you. The Holy Spirit is active in your life right now. When we look at Jesus we see that this is what true humanity really is. He is not less human than us because he he never experienced sin. He is more human. He is the epitome. He is the pinnacle. He is the supreme human, the most supreme human that has ever lived. He is our example. He was filled with the Spirit just as we are. As we commit our lives to living according to the Spirit, we are living out God's original design for us. So we've seen, because Jesus is fully God, fully man, fully obedient, we can imitate His humble service. We can imitate his spirit empowered humanity by utilizing the same resources that he had the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the fellowship of the saints. And last, we should look to him as our perfect righteousness. So far, we've seen that Jesus was fully God, fully man, fully obedient. We talked about humble service, spirit empowered living, right? All that sounds really good, I hope. I really do hope that meditating on these truths will motivate us to leave here and strive for godliness, Christ-likeness in every area of our lives. Meditating on Christ should have that effect on us. But if we stop here, we would be missing a crucial step in that process. In fact, if we stopped there, we could potentially be committing a fatal error In our pursuit of Christ. Because you see, Christ coming to be our model of imitation is not the most important reason Jesus came to earth. He did not only come to do some really good things so that his followers would know how to live the way God wants us to live. Because you see, no matter how badly you want to go out and live like Jesus now, the problem is that you and I are sinners... Still, we're not perfect, and at some point, we will fail to live up to our own expectations and, more importantly, God's. The truth is, no matter how humble we are, there will come a time when we will pursue our own interests over another's. No matter how much you love your spouse now, you will get angry with him or her and say something to hurt them. No matter how motivated you are right now to pour yourself out in service to others, you will not do so perfectly. And even our best efforts will fail to live up to God's righteous standard. So if we walk away from this message with the motivation to just try harder, we'll find ourselves discouraged and hopeless. But because Jesus was fully God, fully man, And fully obedient, we can look to him as our perfect righteousness. You see, our biggest problem in life is that God's wrath rests upon us. And there's nothing we can do in our own power to fix that problem. We cannot make ourselves righteous enough. We cannot undo our problem of sin. We must be made righteous But there is nothing we can do to attain that righteousness. This is why the obedience of Christ, the full obedience of Christ, is so important to us. When Christ came to earth, He lived His life in perfect obedience to His Father. He never sinned. Not one lustful thought, not one evil intention, not one word spoken out of sinful anger He maintained unbroken fellowship with his Father. And because of his righteousness, the religious leaders of his day could not stand him. So they crucified him on a cross. And when he died, he bore the sin of his people and made a way for us to be delivered from our bondage to sin and the wrath of God. Hebrews 2.14 says it this way. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself, that's Christ, partook of the same things. He partook of flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Second Corinthians 5.21 says it best. For our sake God made him, that's Christ, To be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the point, church. I'll finish up. Because of Jesus' righteous life and atoning death, you and I can find redemption. This is the best news we can receive today. The best news for us is not that we should imitate Jesus No matter how true that is, we should imitate Jesus. The best news is that Jesus was fully God, fully man, and fully obedient. And because of that, we don't have to be. He already was for us. Those who have faith in him will receive his righteous life it's only when we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ that we find our true identity as God's adopted children. This is the glorious truth of the gospel that we're here to celebrate every week. This is the good news that, we, that should never get old to us. And as we consider today what it means for Christ to be fully God, fully man, and fully obedient, let's sing now. Let's sing and worship and enjoy the redemption that is fully ours because of what our Savior has done. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Aren't you thankful that he was fully obedient for us? Aren't you thankful that we don't have to leave here and just try harder but we can look to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the righteous one, and because of his righteousness, we can be made righteous. Let's pray as we prepare to sing. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious truth of Scripture. Thank you, Father, that your word, these grand, eternal, Life-giving truths don't just stay up in the clouds for us, but they work their way down into our hearts. They work their way down into our hands and our feet. They affect, Father, I pray that they would affect how we speak, how we love, where we go, how we spend our time, the things we think about. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of all of that, we can look to Jesus. We can look to him because he is our perfect righteousness anyway. No good work that we do will earn your favor. It's only because of Christ that we can find our identity in him and our home with you. Lord, we thank you for that promise. May we celebrate it now. May we sing of it. May our hearts be full. In Jesus' name, amen.